this is Mike McNamara, and you're listening to All Marine Radio on your home for it, the one and only All Warrior Radio Network. Something more than a sneeze is a foot. So, yep. Um, so, good morning to you. Mike McNamara for a Thursday edition of Ballroom Radio, right here on your home for it. The All Warrior Radio Network, as I untangle a headset. Um, 
For those of you who don't know me very well, one of the things I hate is losing shit. And I don't know how long ago, maybe two weeks ago, I lost a pair of headphones. My fav probably my favorite uh, Bluetooth headphones. And I cannot find them. I don't know where they are. I know there's someplace around, because that tends to be the way this shit happens. But I cannot find them for the life of me. And they're not cheap either. Other thing. So I've taken to wearing uh, wired headphones because Bluetooth headphones piss me off. Because you always have to, um, you always have to charge them, and you know the bullshit of um, the bullshit of uh, <clears throat> of they got to connect, and then they didn't connect, and all that. So I thought, you know what, I should experiment with. Um, I should experiment with other sets of headphones and um, and see if I like wired headphones more. And I have to tell you, I've done that, and I'm starting to uh, change my view on Bluetooth. Mm-hmm, I know, I know. But let me just tell you, having said that, um, Bose makes a pair of noise canceling bluetooth headphones that i say are like going to carnegie hall now the question is can i find can i replicate that with a with wired headphones and i think i can i've got this in fact i should do i should do a little report on head on headphones because i mean I, I i use them for this um and uh and then throughout the course of my day um i use them for other things and I've even thought about getting custom made because I use them so much, right? And I am a bit of an audiophile. So, uh, but I haven't gone that far yet. I'm close, but I haven't gone that far. And I, I would only want to get like very high end, yeah, headphones, right? Custom made for your own ear, like all that. But I'm not there yet. But yeah, I lost them. And then in the middle of the night, I thought, you know what? That day I was mowing my lawn. And for whatever reason, I was wearing sweatpants, but I know I haven't checked those yet. Maybe they're there. So, as I got out of the shower a little bit ago, I grabbed my sweats, and I'm like, yes! Uh, the answer, no, they were not there. So, anyway. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, good morning. Gret Newsom's going to join me in about six minutes. And, um, as usual, we'll get, Jan we'll get Grant's thoughts on... Um, on a few things, we'll get his thoughts on uh, Russia versus Ukraine. We'll get his thoughts on how China is navigating this, um, in particular the economics of this. Uh, we'll get his thoughts on uh, a number of different things. I believe it was Admiral Aquaino talking about the fortification of the Spratly Islands. Also, an article that I saw talking about you know Mr. Duterte's reign is coming to an end in the Philippines. So get Grant's uh, updated thoughts on that. We've heard some of them before. And, um, and we'll also talk to him about uh, his thoughts on something that we talked about yesterday, um, and that is the, um, the intramural firefight inside the Marine Corps that has now gone public about the future of the Marine Corps. And we'll get his thoughts on that. So, uh, yeah, Grant Newsom is going to join me in five minutes. So without further ado, good morning to you. 
Uh, thanks for listening today on this uh, on this Thursday, the 24th day of March, almost gone, right? April here, almost here. So crazy. But the uh, United States Marine Corps Band makes this, mor- this morning official. Good morning to you. This is dedicated to General Berger, Commandant of the Marine Corps. Um, I first crossed paths with him in Iraq in 2006 when I was part of RCT-5, and we replaced RCT-8. So I met him there. and But I didn't know him very well. He was, uh, you know, I never spent any time with him. He's not the most, uh, he's, he's a relatively quiet man. Um, and... Um, and then I cross paths with him again when he's a CGA one MIF and I get in trouble and he NJPs me. And um, we didn't really have very many conversations then. Um, and then I do post-traumatic winning at the General Officer Symposium in 2019, a month after I first started it. And it was not nearly the product it is today, but General Neller had me do it. And so I did it. And... Um, so there's, it's, it's a room, it's a conference room full of Marine General officers, and, and their spouses were there at this presentation. And sitting at the table right in front of the stage, directly in front, is General Berger. And I'm like, shit, man. And, uh, and I spoke with him afterwards. Um, uh, I, I met his wife. Uh, his son, uh, you know, approached me when he saw it at EWS. And so, um, again, being a commandant's not an easy job. Uh, so this is dedicated to him. You know, in this whole debate about the future of the Marine Corps, good luck. A lot of pressure on him to handle it well. And uh, so this is dedicated to uh, General David Berger, commandant of the Marine Corps. Uh, good luck in all this. <laughs>
betraying your whole life if you don't say what you think and you don't say it honestly and bluntly. What keeps you awake at night? Nothing. I keep other people awake at night. For this campus had prepared him well. <clears throat> I'm very confident that thank you very much. <clears throat> if this was vodka, it'd be a lot better speech. <clears throat> <clears throat> but I'm not supposed to glamorize alcohol anymore. So, young folks, you ignore what I just said. We just have to execute. And we are executing every day. And so, our major and I are very proud of what you do. Doesn't mean we can't get better. We don't. We don't want to make a mistake to learn. We don't want to lose to learn. We cannot lose if we have to go fight. We got to do what these Marines did here 75 years ago: persevere against difficult challenging conditions and odds and win. You gotta win. Neller, the truth teller. How about that? Didn't even try to make that rhyme and it did. Yeah. That sound you just heard is Joe coming in from being outside. Mm-hmm. He got his morning treat, and then he and Jack go in the backyard, do their business, check out the uh, back 40, make sure everything is what as it's supposed to be. And Joe comes back in. Normally he'll lay down here in the studio, or actually normally he goes in to find Colleen and goes back to sleep, being the bums that my dogs are. Currently in Quantico, the crossroads of the Marine Corps, it is cloudy in 52 down the coast at Cherry Point. It is raining in 66. In Twenty-Nine Palms, it is sunny in 62 already. Pendleton, sunny in 65. Hmm. Camp Smith in Hawaii, dark cloudy in 68. Okinawa, dark cloudy 68. In Darwin. It is freezing there, dark, cloudy, and 76, and that is freezing for Darwin. And in Kiev, it is cloudy and 44 degrees as the spring thaw is well underway in farm country of Europe. So with that said, we will call Grant Newsham here. Hey, all right, Grant here. As I just mentioned, um, I'd like, it's an honor for me to introduce the pride of Virginia, Grant Newsham, <laughs> right? Um, the scourge <laughs> and nemesis of Baltimore. Um, That's true. Exactly. Yes. But he does know who Mark Belanger is, the blade, as he's known. <laughs> and if you don't, don't worry about it. Um, Grant, the first thing I want to ask you about is there's a bit of a, an intramural firefight that has brewed in the Marine Corps since General Berger unveiled his Force Design 2030 plan. And it is it has existed and brewed in the Marine Corps uh, below the waterline, dare I say. Mm-hmm. And yeah. yet, um, in the space of a couple weeks, uh, General Sheehan 
uh, wrote a piece uh, for the Wall Street Journal, uh, a letter to the editor, and General Van Riper wrote an opinion piece for Marine Corps Times. And essentially, in public, questioning, actually in, in public, um, doing in public what had been done in private for the last couple of years. And, and I'm just curious about your thoughts about it. Uh, we had a pretty interesting discussion about it yesterday. Um, but it's uh, unprecedented, uh, at least in my lifetime in the Marine Corps, dare I say yours, that general officers would uh, publicly click off safe and question the Commandant of the Marine Corps. Um, guys who, General Sheehan and General Van Riper, holy smokes, right, with their, their careers and credibility. Uh, so I'm curious about your thoughts about that as a, you know, as a retired Marine officer. Oh, boy, I've never seen anything like it uh, that I can think of. Um, if I had been alive in the early 50s, maybe I would have. Uh, but no, this is unprecedented, as you, as you say. Uh, and everybody's got, you know, their take on, on this. You know, all I can do is say how it, a few things that have struck me after the, the Commandant's plan appeared. Uh, and, you know, at first I, I, I thought, you know, I welcome the sort of the shift in thinking and, you know, the, the idea of uh, doing some things differently, perhaps, you know, certainly operating in a more light way, light, more maneuverable fashion than the usual sort of large uh, amphibious assault, which seemed based on MUSE, these largest, largish uh, units, which is how it seemed that we kind of got stuck doing. And so I welcome the sort of the the, the new ideas, uh, particularly that suited the geography for uh, the Pacific, uh, where you're likely to take on the on the Chinese. And there was, a, I think, a real need to have some better thinking on how the Marines could fit into all of this. And as I said, take advantage of the geography. Um, and I also thought it was good that there was a focus on the Pacific finally. You know, after at least 20 years of ignoring it, uh, at least, and everything was the sandbox, Iraq, Afghanistan, you would have MARFORPAC commanders who would go to Washington to the general officer symposium or the gen the meeting of all the Marine generals. And they said they'd come back and say, we couldn't get anybody interested in the Pacific. And that I thought was a long overdue change to have the at least the Marines focusing on the Pacific. Um, one thing that caused me some concern from the beginning was the commandant's comment that, well, the best and brightest are going to the, now they're going to go to the Pacific, uh, which, yes, it caused me some concern, one, because that what happens when some new area or new thing comes hot, it tends to attract experts out of the woodwork, people who want to make a name for themselves, just like when insurgencies became the thing and after 2011. I had no idea the Marine Corps had so many experts in insurgency and counterinsurgency. Well, the short answer is they didn't, but you had people smelling the hot thing. Also the idea that somehow there are best and brightest within the Marine Corps uh, sort of rubs me the wrong way. Yes, there are a few officers that everyone knows and are very, very good, but in general, yeah, I'd say 90% are about the same quality. Uh, so I didn't, that caused me some concern. But um, what, I, so what I'm particularly worried about now, and as time got, went on, is that the whole thing struck me a little too much as of having everything figured out. 
you know, they would, people would say, well, you know, you sure you should get rid of this equipment? Are you sure you should even operate this way uh, in these little units that you think you're going to put on to the, you know, these Pacific Island, little, tiny Pacific Islands and stay secret? Uh, and how, you, how are you going to do that? But, but it seemed that everything these guys had an answer for. And but I'll go jump back a little bit. I have no idea who actually drafted the plan. You know, what people or person, or who, I have no idea. It's almost as if it was done in secret. Um, it almost reminds you of McNamara's whiz kids. And I'm referring to Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara during the Vietnam War. Yeah, not my two oldest sons, okay. Just, so, just and, for the record, that has nothing to do with me. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Well, you, you. If you had horn-rimmed glasses, you might be the guy. <laughs> but no, he was the he was the, he was the guy. He was sort of the Don Rumsfeld of his day, and he had these whiz kids. They were like systems analysts or something like that, and they had figured out how you fight and win wars efficiently, just the way you know McNamara had done building cars at Ford Motors, uh, and this was how it was going to be done. And all of the, I say many of, if not most of the problems from Vietnam stemmed out of that. So these guys had everything figured out and it turned out they were wrong, the whiz kids. So as I say, I have no idea who made the commandant's plan. I wish he had announced that. Um, and I don't get the impression that, well, because one, it does matter who, who drafts these things. And you know, they, you need to know. And it seemed like it was done in secret almost. Uh, which I didn't think was a good idea. You get the impression they didn't talk to as many people as they should have. And there's a big difference between uh, having to, you say, to have a project like this to resh reshape the Marine Corps and having you know every Tom, Dick, and Harry on Earth consulted about it and 10 outside consulting companies working on it and having just this tiny little group of people, nobody knows who they are. There were a lot of people they should have contacted about this before they rolled it out. And then it got rolled out. And when you started to raise questions about it, you were almost told you were stupid. Uh, it was almost jammed down people's throat. And you would hear, well, we war-gamed it. And they have an answer for everything. And it reminds you of, like, of some guy at a, you know, some you know, PFC who's gotten in trouble. And, you know, he's before the, the gunny and the, the guy, the, guy, the PFC has an answer for everything. He's got everything. And that it causes me a lot of concern, actually, of how this is, um, as it has been rolled out in particular and how it was conceived. Uh, so I just don't, I don't know. And it looks to me like, you know, they are getting rid of too many things, too much hardware. Uh, weapons in, in before they really have the the next thing available um, and and there's a presumption I think that the commandant's plan they have considered every possible future scenario they have figured out how the next war is going to come uh, they had better hope the Chinese cooperate it and fight uh, cooperate and fight it the way that the CMC's whiz kids think it was going to come. Uh, they, of course, fall back and say, well, it applies to every kind of war. Well, and maybe not. Uh, if you remember from the beginning, it was all very Asia-China uh, focused. Um, additionally, uh, it's, there's a bit of a sort of a labor union aspect to this, where the commandant appears to be saying that, well, the Marine Corps is not going to fight a certain kind of war. We're just going to fight the kind of war we feel like fighting. Uh, play the sort of role we feel like fighting. 
uh, but we're not going to do what a, big ground campaigns or so whatever it is. But uh, Marines are supposed to be an all-purpose force, and I am leery of uh, moving into this over-specialized sort of giant Royal Marines. Uh, you can do, and once again, it's it does remind you of a labor union boss telling management, well, you know, my guys, uh, we're not working on Thursdays and Fridays, and you know, we're not going to work outside the county. And we're not going to work after nine o'clock. Uh, so that's something that, that causes me concern uh, about it. And, you know, it, yes, the warfare changes are not in its most fundamental aspects, but, you know, the, the way, you know, just weaponry in particular and technology changes the way that the wars are fought. And that's been going on forever. Uh, and there's we're seeing that shift going on um, really at the present time. But if you focus only on what's going to be out there, say 10 years or what's at the far end of the technology spectrum, and you give up these things that are still pretty darn useful uh, for fighting in a lot of places you're going to fight uh, today, if you get rid of that stuff too soon, get rid of the capability too soon, you're going to be left without, uh, without some things you need. And people are also going to see you as somebody who's missing something and perhaps to be taken advantage of. You know, if you, and, you know, obviously getting rid of tanks, uh, bridging equipment, uh, you know, that, you know, I would be inclined to keep on some of that, you know, stashed in the garage with my, you know, push lawnmower just in case I run out of gasoline. Uh, you know, so there's a lot of things which about would that. be Which would be the 4th Marine Division. Yeah. Well, kind right, of. Right. I yeah. mean, we own them. We we we've manned them. You know, we've we've evolved them into what they need to be for the future. Yada yada yada. But that that was <clears throat> that was the option that was obviously one of the options that was 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 rejected. And you know what you see. I mean, rejection of the. Um, and and uh, you talked about war gaming. Let me read you. Uh, the commandant did an uh, interview with David Ignatius on the 16th, I believe. Mr. Ignatius, so sir, I want to begin by asking you a bit about the war in Ukraine, which as I said, we're all following with such interest. From a military perspective, as a combat of our Marine Corps, give us your sense of why the Russian invasion force has seemed to have difficulty over these first three weeks of war. What do you specifically observe as a problem for their force? General Berger, great question. A couple of thoughts. First, I think during a conflict, it's difficult to draw all the deeper lessons learned. So some, of course, will come over time with deeper analysis. But while the conflict is going on, a couple of thoughts perhaps. One is that analysis, computer modeling, helps in some regards. But I would say that if you ran a computer model on the Russian military versus the Ukraine military, it would, it would give you a certain answer that I would say probably wouldn't last all that long. But that's obviously not what's happening. And the reason I start there, sir, is models, computer models, can't, of course, factor the human elements. So before you know, before someone were to talk about the Russian forces and what they're doing, I think you have to begin with the Ukrainian forces and how well they're doing. So it's kind of interesting that, you know, just to, to illustrate, you know, Force Design 2030 rests so much on modeling. And in this interview, he kind of poo-poos modeling and saying, hey, you got to be careful with that. You know? Yeah, I, I noticed that as well. Actually, I uh, read the article it, and uh, the same reaction as you, because I've heard that response from 
uh, the to quote, the the zealots defending this plan as right. well. We war we war gamed it. We war gamed it. Well, and the, yeah. and the other the other thing you hear, Grant, and, and excuse me for interrupting, you can go on. Is that a lot of this is on the high side, and we can't share it with you? Oh yeah. Oh, okay. It yeah it. Um, you know, the other aspect part of this plan is that, you know, if you look at it in the way it was initially described, is it, it calls for, you know, these putting these little teams of Marines on these tiny little islands or, or even bigger islands, the so-called stand-in force, I mm -hmm. think it is. Right. Um, you're going to put them all over the Pacific, you know, on little islands, big islands, etc. Um, you know, as noted, if you're on these tiny little islands that the Chinese are going to know where you are. You know, how are you, you know, it's just these basic questions. How are you going to keep them hidden? How are you going to keep them supplied? You know, shut up. We war gamed it. You know, if you ask the question, you know, you're, you know, it's you've, um, you're going to get attacked. Uh, and then there's the other question is, you know, we talk about all our partners and allies in the, the region and who exactly has got the welcome mat out for marine units? And I think we've talked about this before. Uh, well, it's a really short list. And so you've rolled out this plan that depends on putting Marines here and there throughout the region, and you don't have a place to put them. Now, Beck, you know, that seems like a reasonable question to address and to ask and something that uh, you should have, they should have thought about in the beginning. You know, I, if you miss that, you wonder what else they just might have gotten wrong. It's not to, uh, you know, malign the, the intentions of the people behind this, because I think there were some say that I was first favorably disposed to it. And I think you do have to always keep thinking. And there are some good aspects to the plan, but it, it has that there's an air of hubris to it that, you know, we're fig we're the smart guys, we figured it out. And there's a lot of people and that doesn't say it doesn't have to be thousands, but there's a really a handful of people that if I was making a plan like this, no matter how much research I did, no matter how smart I thought everyone else was, that I had to talk to them uh, to get their input and also to grease the skids if you're going to uh, do this. But uh, once again, it brings to mind uh, Robert McNamara and his whiz kids. And, you know, if you, you're old enough or you just get on the Internet, you can uh, uh, bring yourself up to, up to speed. These guys really cost a lot of trouble, cause a lot of pain and agony and really disaster for the United States uh, because of their thinking they had everything figured out. And, you know, they had all the technologies mastered and they could foresee how it was all going to play out. So I, I read that interview as well um, with uh, Ignatius and I, I, it did not solve any of my problems, resolve any of my concerns, uh, nor did it. I mean, as you say, there were some inconsistencies in there uh, that jump right out at you when it commenting on the Ukraine uh, business and then saying, well, what about, you know, the, your plan for, you know, for transforming the Marine Corps? What some of the things you said were problems in the Ukraine seem to apply equally to to this plan. I say it was I think, very poorly done uh, from the, the rollout. And you know, yes, sometimes you have to move fast to get anything done in any organization, including the Marine Corps. But this one, I now, I, if, if the army had done it to themselves, I would probably be sniggering. But no, I wouldn't, because this is too important for the United States. Uh, it's taking, it's removing from, uh, I think, America's defense capabilities, a requirement that we just might need, uh, even if we can't foresee exactly 
uh, how that's going to be. And another thing I would note is well, that— and, and can I interject? And I think yeah. that's what you see in General Sheehan's letter, and that's what you see in General Van Riper's op-ed piece, and that is this. Um, you're familiar with the Lynn Wells memo on predicting the future, right? Have you, you've seen that, right, Grant? I think yeah. you and I have talked about it. But, yes. Mm -hmm. So you read that with, with great, um, it's almost uh, a, a wry smile, right? So understanding that our ability to predict, predict future conflict is shit, right? There is a, there's an argument to be made for being a generalist at nature, being able to operate across the range of military operations and nuance to certain skills, Marine Corps, amphibious, and naval. Okay, we, I think we all got that. <clears throat> so when you see that being ignored, and as you said, what you see in, in the Sheehan piece and the Van Riper piece is this argument for this is what we have always been, and we're riding ourselves into this nuanced force. And then what you get back is, oh, no, we're not. And, and so let me read this to you. Uh, Mr. Ignatius, um, he says, I want to, he, he, he asked the Commandant a question about the Bing West uh, uh, piece that Bing West wrote, I, don't, I think a couple months ago. But again, I would tell you this, Bing West is not a retired Marine Corps general officer. He is certainly an, an, a renowned author about things Marine, but he doesn't rise to the, his credibility doesn't rise to that of General, general Van Riper or General Sheehan. So he said he, he asked the commandant about force design 2030, right? And so General Berger says this, and, and I'll quote the third sentence. I would begin by saying, first of all, today, this afternoon, we're capable of any mission that the Secretary of Defense were to send us. We are a crisis response force. We can handle the task now. Now, Grant, I, I mean... That's not what we've been sold in terms of, hey, the Marine Corps, um, yeah, w we don't do windows anymore. We're not a closed-with organization anymore. If this kind of conflict breaks out, we won't be a part of it. And it's, I, for me, it's frustrating because why doesn't Ignatius ask him about that? Why is there no follow-up to reconcile, you know, that which Ignatius certainly knows, or maybe, you know, maybe he... I would hope he would know, but it's just, I don't know, it's disturbing when you see the statement that blatant, the, and yet the reality is so different. Uh, to, and, and you alluded to some, a point that General Van Riper made, which is, we have divested. It will be, according to um, the Marine Corps, almost eight years before we have these systems in place. That is a window of vulnerability for the Marine Corps in which it is divested and, and has nothing back in return for the most part. And so it's just, I don't know, it's just disturbing to me that even the discussion in public doesn't seem to be able to be done with any skill. No, it, it really doesn't. And say that it was just uh, very horribly, it was just poorly rolled out. And if you roll it out poorly, it's often hard to recover from that. And I think that the, so I don't, and as noted, I don't think that they consulted the the people they should have uh, in advance to, but to you know, say to get their advice uh, on you know say things you just might have missed uh, that and also people whose support for this was going to be necessary. Well, let me tell you, uh, if you say war, if if I say okay, Grant, as your new therapist, 
I'm going to show you these ink cards, and I'm going to say a word, and you tell me the first thing that pops into your head, okay? So we're Marines, and I, I hand you an, an ink blot that looks like the Eagle Globe and Anchor, and I say, Wargaming. What do you say? Uh, it has its uses, uh, but you, it isn't always right. But hey, is General Van Riper's name somewhere in there? Because he is... He's, oh, he... <laughs> right? I know your point, yeah. Right, it, did you... So, yeah. war game, Van Riper, right? Am I right? Or you're pretty close, because he yeah, is... Yeah. He's the guy mm -hmm. that, you know, yeah. that the whole thing... He blew up the whole plan for Iraq with his war game and and, and was prophetic yeah. in it. And so, was, yeah. was, was, was he involved in this? Uh, no, he was not. Oh, why not? Because he might have <laughs> shit on the idea? Well, don't, don't it, you think the idea has to stand... A fair amount of excrement to live. Oh, we had to go. We were in too big a hurry. You know, he's right. our commandant. He's only got three years. We got to move fast. No, you know, when I used to do this, some stuff. One of the first things I would do when I would get the the project was to find, like, the people who knew the subject, ideally old people, and find out what they had to say. And it just to me, it seems so obvious. And it's not like I say, it isn't like you ask. 10,000 people, but, you know, any Marine, any Marine has been around a while could probably name at least a dozen people that, you know, you really ought to get their input on this. And I think that would have been useful. Um, another and a couple just a quick things is that um, the, the plan seems to be geared from the, you know, the, the start point is when the war starts, you know, we're getting set up to almost to fight the war. And it thinks, I think it ignores the phase zero, the peacetime uh, things that a Marine Corps has to do and the things that come up in peacetime that you also have to take care of. But it, it all it just seemed a little too geared to fighting the Chinese coming in from the West uh, and through the islands. Almost the Marines were playing the role of the old Australian coast watchers during World War II. And that is actually a useful uh, role to have to bedevil an enemy, make it very, you know, if the Coast Watchers had had anti ship missiles and you know, some anti aircraft stuff, it would have made a, a big, the Japanese life even miserable. Um, but also remember that when the Japanese did make an effort to go after the Coast Watchers, they made life pretty miserable for these guys and they were on the run and did not always survive. Um, but I didn't think that this would be the whole thing. I didn't think that we would get rid of these other capabilities to do other kinds of fighting uh, in exchange for, you know, this sort of pared down role on these little Pacific islands. Uh, you know, that surprised me. Also, one thing I would note that one of the arguments that's made is, well, we, you know, there isn't going to be the budget. We're not going to have enough money for these things. So we have to get rid of these things because we won't have the money. If there's one thing I'm sure of after, you know, government and private sector experience and experience anywhere is that nobody cares if you save money. Nobody cares if you come in under budget. Uh, it, you're not going to get any credit for it. Uh, what you do is you make the case for why you need uh, everything you, you know, every, all the money you, you, you are getting and why you need more. Uh, but to preemptively uh, give up funding or give up stuff because you uh, pre predicted the future and you think you're not going to be getting any, more, getting any more. As I say, nobody will say thank you very much, Marine Corps. We appreciate it, uh, you know, on your way. It, it's I just don't understand uh, why they did that. If you have a need for a certain capability and you think you might in the future, 
you should keep make the case why you you should have it. The amounts of money the Marine Corps has saved, uh, th this is you know it's like an hour's worth of Medicaid fraud. It doesn't figure in the national budget, and you know if, if it's important, make the case. So I thought that preemptive um, giving up cash was not a good idea. Um, given this is a uh, final question about this, and then I, I want to move to Russia v Ukraine. Um, do you think this is all we will see? Do you think you'll see we will see other um, general officers uh, speak out against this uh, against the commandant? What is your sense of what does the future hold? Because to me, it seems, and if I I think this is going to turn into a fight over who is going to be the next commandant and the direction of the Marine Corps for the future. Hmm. Well, if, you know, once again, all it is is my opinion. Right, is that. Uh, I think you're probably going to see some, a few more off generals, uh, officers speak out. And I don't think it will ultimately make any difference. Uh, I think in this case, they're just going to have to ride out uh, the, the incumbent and see what comes next. But uh, as for what comes next, I'm afraid that uh, to pass the, the interview and be selected as commandant, uh, that it... Um, may not be somebody who wants to uh, change things back to the way that some of us think it should be. Uh, that's, it does seem as that's the, the, the trend. You, you never know, we might get uh, lucky, um, but that I'm kind of concerned that uh, what comes next may not be a, a huge improvement. Yeah, you know, in the last few days, or probably in the last uh, month, you've seen more articles uh, that talk about the defense budget as a percentage of GDP and how it shrunk over time. Mm -hmm. And the fact is that the United States, um, I mean, the, the Obama administration, we're not going to be able to fight two wars simultaneously and the budget implications for that. We will fight one at a time. And uh, when we were fighting two uh, at the time, um, interesting. And so to me, if there is a candle of hope, it is that the that the nation, Congress, will have to relook at the, the budget of the DOD, and maybe there will be an effort to restore the Marine Corps uh, to be able to operate across the range of military operations, and uh, as well as to do uh, the nuanced operations in the Western Pacific. And I think that would be the vision of General Ben Riper, General Sheehan, and whatnot. So maybe there is maybe there is a, a little bit of a flicker at the end of a tunnel. So we shall yeah, see. And, yeah, and you never, as I say, you never know. It, it you know, it's I you know don't want to you know be too negative. You know, so you just never know. And sometimes outside events uh, shape things just as much. Yeah, and you know, you could find that things the Chinese do, the things the Russians do, that suddenly it's um, it's raining cash. Uh, and there's also, and also that what they do, you know, it kind of causes scales to fall from eyes or people to think about things a little differently and realize, you know, we really, it would have been nice to have that capability. Let's get it back. Uh, so you so say you never quite know one, you, you know, one has to be hopeful, you know, they, you don't have to be, but, um, if the alternative is to say, ah, oh, it's all completely screwed and we're finished, um, then I would. You know, prefer to hope that we're going to uh, pull through this. You know, one I've heard about the <clears throat> like the post-Vietnam, the latter days of Vietnam and the early 70s, when the Marine Corps was an absolute disaster uh, in a different way. Um, 
that it was really was a bunch of good officers and NCOs who stuck around and, and staff NCOs, I say, who stuck around and kind of held down the fort until things could could get fixed. And that had you know to do, I think, with guys like General Wilson and, and also Big Ron, Ronald Reagan um, showing up and, you know, who who were able to improve, fix things. And maybe we're some way we're going to get through this uh, in a way we can't quite predict. Right. So it's not the first time we've been in trouble. No, but again, the first time we've seen general officers in such a public way yeah. click off safe on an, on the active commandant. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, but riveting yeah. stuff. Um, yeah. One thing, oh, oh, if I could, well, General sure. Van Riper. Um, you know, there's two Van Rypers. One was a colonel, and one right. is the General Van Riper. And right. General Van Riper was considered the mean one. Uh, at least that was my recollection of it. <laughs> oh, let me tell you, that was everybody's <laughs> recollection of it. Okay, good. Then he was the mean one. Mm -hmm. But uh, this was maybe a decade ago when I was um, helping the, the Japanese uh, create their amphibious force. That was the very beginning. And I brought these three retired Japanese, uh, two generals and one admiral uh, to Quantico to talk to the Marines. And, uh, you know, so they could figure out amphibious operations and, you know, and then go back to Tokyo and make the recommendation that Japan needs this stuff. So it was all done kind of quietly. And but when I took them one night to the Globe and Laurel, of course, um, of course. To, uh, you know, Major Spooner's restaurant, mm -hmm. and it was crowded. You know, these guys, these Japanese guys, loved it. You know, and the the irony of it, of course, was not lost on me. Um, you know, that these Japanese admirals in the Globe and Laurel, which is <laughs> you know this marine, gosh, like a marine museum round, you know, round marine kind of guys. And General Van Riper was there with um, a couple other people. And I'd never met him. But for some reason, I forget how, I think it was um, Major Spooner actually introduced me to him. And I explained to him what we were doing, trying to, uh, uh, you know, build this Japanese Marine, you know, kind of Marine Corps. And um, General Van Bry was very interested and asked, you know, asked questions about it. And, and then at the end, he said, you know, if there's anything I can do, let me know, you know to help, which I appreciated uh, even now. And, uh, and so, you know, I, I, maybe he wasn't quite as scary as he should have been. But it was, I, you know, he was a guy you could see that he, um, you know, he made a good impression. I would say I still appreciate that. And, and even um, uh, Major Spooner, uh, who uh, owned the restaurant, and an old, this old uh, Marine who you know, used up nine of his 10 lives in World War II. You know, I, I told him what we were doing as well. He says, oh, you know, well, uh, I've, seen the, I've seen the best of the Japanese and I've seen the worst of the Japanese too. And he says, but if there's anything I can do to help you with this, let me know. And uh, he was very gracious, of course, to sort of to me and to the uh, Japanese guests as well. So I just threw that in because it was kind of it was an it was a fun, uh, it, was a, it was a good experience to see that. You know, um, I had General Ben Riper on uh, when uh, the Marine Corps was having a very interesting discussion about um, discipline. And um, he came on and, you know, when you hear his story, born in Pennsylvania and, and whatnot, <clears throat> And he said, look, I, I, I didn't get hatched like that, okay? And he, and he tells the story about being the commanding officer of Mike Company 3-7 in Vietnam, I want to say in 1968, uh, suffering over 100% casualty. He had 75, I want to say, I think around 75 Marines killed in his company. Uh, 
and uh, over 100% casualties if you count all the casualties over the course of the year. And he talks about the hard lessons they learned about knowing where the smoke is, knowing about who, knowing who has a shackle sheet, making sure that everybody knows these things, right? Knowing where the corpsman is. And so all the things that he, you know, was renowned for in terms of terrorizing young <laughs> officers like Grant and I, really, I mean, making you shit your pants, like, right? And um, he, tells you, he tells the story of where these hard lessons came from. And and he was trying to he was trying to help us survive in combat, but we we I mean we were young and stupid and and had no and really had literally no idea we're ignorant, and um, and no he's 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 a brilliant guy, and when you see a guy like that express his concern like that, if you as Grant said normally older guys if you do not take heed of his warning and account for his criticism, right then you deserve what you get. Because these guys are incredibly devoted to the institution, right? They'll literally, they will die for it. And they've risked their lives on multiple occasions for it. They've led, you know, in front of it. And if you don't account for their criticism, and that's to me what it appears that the commandant has not done. He either ignored it, he took it on board, right? Then did not heed it. And now they've said, okay, if you want to do this in public, then we'll do it in public. And, and it's not a very good way of doing business. And so it, that's why this is going to be so fascinating. But, but again, that is my, your experience, Grant, is my experience. He's, a, he's an incredibly intimidating guy, um, but he's uh, intellectually interested and will help you in any way he can. And so I, I had a very similar experience. So, so anyway, the um, Russia-Ukraine, any new thoughts on that as this thing has continued to go forward? Hmm. It... Um you know, there's once again, you know, it's observing it from a, a real distance, like everyone else or most people. Um, and you know, now I'm concerned with what's coming next. Uh, you know, it seems as though there's been little too much of a celebration that the that the Russians have failed, that the Ukrainians have won. Um, and but you know, I'm always sort of looking over my shoulder, and I wonder about that. You know, it's uh, they certainly fought them to a standstill, but you know, I would imagine the Russians are redeploying some things and they're going to have another go at it. Uh, I don't think they've used anywhere near the some of the weaponry that they they could. Uh, that you know, it uh, so I'm a little con I'm concerned, you know, about what's coming, and you know, I'd say I don't have any inside information at all. Um, about this, but it the idea that well, it's just you know the Ukrainians have stopped them and the Russians are going to give up, or Putin is going to give up. I don't quite see that yet. So I'm uh, say concerned about uh, what's coming. You know, sometimes it you know it, you know in in these things you have this initial assault, it gets fought to a certain state, and then one side you know the other side's kind of back down or and. There's a tendency to not be able to see what's coming or imagine it. But I think the Russians just might um, have, I think they've got more up their sleeve. And it may not even be in Ukraine. I could easily see them doing something else, something somewhere else that shocks us. Uh, you know, they, yeah, and that's a real concern is because, and from the beginning here, Putin has, uh, has not responded the way that the, the Western I don't know, foreign policy crowd thought that he should. 
you know, he should because we did a certain thing. Well, he should do. He should respond a certain way. He seems to have responded the opposite uh, in every case. So I think there's more coming, uh, and I hope we are getting the the Ukrainians ready for it. Uh, and I hope we're getting other people ready for it in other countries as well. Um, and this is, and while we're focusing on uh, Ukraine and sort of Eastern Europe, uh, that you know the Pacific is no less interesting. Uh, and you know there does seem to be a certain amount of coordination going on here between the the Russians and the Chinese and the North Koreans, and even the uh, Iranians. And I'll just leave Latin America out of it for now. Uh, so, so just a, a few things, but you really have to be impressed with what the the Ukrainians have, have done. Um, you know, it's you know, so many people probably didn't think they were going to last more than a few days. Well, they've lasted longer than that. And there's a, you know, but but the Russians, once again, they've suffered heavy casualties, whatever the number is, say 7,000 to 15,000. That's dead, apparently. Uh, and so obviously a lot more wounded, but they are, uh, they can absorb a lot of, uh, sort of a lot of damage as they've shown over history. Uh, but w one thing that does, you know, it's really is kind of weird is that they have made a show of trying to get, saying that they're getting forces from Syria, um, you know, the, the Middle East to bring them in to fight in Ukraine. And that is, it's just weird. It, you know, if it, it do they actually need people that badly or did they think that bringing uh, Mohammedans into uh, fight in Ukraine is going to, uh, sort of scare the Ukrainians into giving up, or what's the? That's a strange thing. Uh, so, you say just a few uh, observations of what's going on, but it remains a uh, uh, just something I never thought I would see in my lifetime: is this kind of a war in uh, in Europe? And you know, how do you get back to normal uh, after this? You know, I'm not convinced that can be done uh, easily or or quickly. Got it. Um, no, a couple of interesting, you know, uh, news items from today. And then I want to talk about China and the Western Pacific. One of them actually is Chinese related. One is you continue to see a series of stories that have evolved in the last week. And that is, um, that the, the Ukrainians are conducting counterattacks or, um, in their, in, in, in different areas and are making progress. Um, a spokesman for Ukraine's defense ministry said its troops have pushed back Russian forces from some areas around Kyiv. Right. Uh, quote, in some sectors, the enemy was driven back more than 44 miles. In some sectors, the enemy is at a distance of 21 miles. Without citing evidence, the Ukrainian spokesperson claimed that the Kremlin had been sending additional military equipment to Belarus to reinforce its troops in and around Kiev. Um, next story is uh, about China itself. China dismisses reports alleging prior knowledge of the invasion. China's defense ministry has dismissed claims that Beijing had prior knowledge of the Russian invasion, announcing such assertions as a smear. The ministry's remarks came in response to foreign media reports that alleged China ignored warnings by the U.S. that Russia would attack Ukraine China strongly disagrees and opposes these claims, which the U.S. made, quote, to shirk responsibility and, sh and smear China, the ministry statement said. Uh, 
So talk to us about how China's navigating this grant. You've been... <laughs> it's a, well, this is helpful. Um, when they make those statements that you pretty much know the opposite is true. Uh, I, I'm not being glib. It's, you know, they just ought to come out and say it. That is how you read these statements. Uh, I would now be inclined to bet all my money on the fact, on the, the proposition that they knew what was coming. Uh, what China is trying to do is to support Russia as much as it can uh, while sort of lying to the West and everyone else and pretending that they really didn't know what was coming, that they uh, want the war to end, they would like to mediate this, they just want to bring peace back. Uh, they want to keep getting the, the benefits that they've gotten from their relationship with uh, the West and I include the Japanese in the West. Uh, and at the same time, um, you know, on the with a wink and a nod, making sure the Russians know we got your back, fellas. Uh, and if um, you got any cheap oil to sell us, please do. Uh, that's how I would read uh, the Chinese behavior. And there's some, you know, there's this uh, on the, the Western side in that chattering class, you know, the commentariat of which I'm a member, you know. Um, there's a lot of people who say, well, the, the Chinese are trying to navigate this uh, you know, this dilemma of, you know, whether that Ukraine poses and that somehow the Chinese are the victims of this, uh, which I think is nonsense. Um, but, you know, and, you know, one thing that someone pointed out the other day is, you know, look, think of how, think of this, you know, India, for example, does not condemn the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And India is savaged as if they are pro-Russian, pro-Putin, anti-American. Um, now, China does not criticize or condemn the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and China is considered neutral in trying to navigate these different circumstances. Look at the different treatment that the two countries get. Um, one, India is a friend of ours, by the way, but China gets this kid gloves treatment. And you know, a friend of mine uh, this morning, he, he sent me something that um, was a statement that I thought I'm actually going to read this through because it's kind of interesting. It, it gets across what we're talking about now about how China is treated. And it's by a guy who is um, the president of a he's an American. He's the president of a, uh, a sort of a business group that deals with the U.S. and China. And, you know, I'm trying to be a little bit elliptic here because I. I um, actually used to work with the guy. We both did. Um, and here's what the guy said. He was quoted as saying this. China's public position on Russia adds fuel to the fire in terms of how its motives are perceived in Congress and the administration. The bilateral relationship between the U.S. and China is likely to worsen before it gets better. That's a tragedy. Okay, that's his quote. Now, my friend added, he noted, um, no. It's not a tragedy. A tragedy is the needless death of defenseless old people as an invader's tank fires a few rounds into an elder care home. A tragedy is becoming a refugee because of a madman's paranoia. A tragedy is a nation that continues to trade with another who openly and unapologetically insults our intelligence by circulating conspiracies meant to undermine the cause of um, innocent Ukrainians and make the U.S. appear to have started it. Now, continuing to trade with another nation that could be either Russia or China. 
That, so that's, you can see where our elite class, our business class, our financial class is coming from, that they're bending over backwards to make China appear uh, innocent. And it is anything but. So, you know. Um, a question on the, on, on the far side of this, whenever that is, will Wall Street be uh, the nation's greatest enemy relative to China? Well, they already are. I think, yes. I think Hold on, let me, let me ask that again. Will Wall Street continue to be the nation's greatest enemy relative to China? Yeah, I think so. Um, human nature is what it is. And when a certain type of Westerner in particular smells money, uh, they, they perform like a sea lion down at SeaWorld that thinks he's going to get mackerel. Uh, and they'll keep doing that. I think it's going to take uh, either Congress forcing them to do not do it or simply the outbreak of such a war that they simply can't transfer their money or cash their checks, or you just physically can't do business with people. I'm afraid that's uh, how that sort of group is. So just maybe that's a little harsh, but I don't think it is by very much. Uh, you can look at the experience of Wall Street and America's business class doing business with uh, Nazi Germany right up to the start of war. Uh, that ought to tell you, and I don't think things have changed all that much. All right. Um, I want to talk to you about a couple uh, articles that I've seen that I've held on to. Uh, and then I want to talk about what you're writing these days. One, um, <clears throat> the Philippines pivot towards China could change when Duterte steps down as president. This was published in, uh, it's about Asia politics, published in uh, on NBC's website. Written by Yen Ni Lee. I don't know if you know who she is. Um, talk about, um, he's set to step down in about three months, I think. Um, the Philippines has, has charted a, a fairly different course, but that course has kind of come back to where it historically was uh, as they have uh, done some military exercising with the United States and a few other things as they seem to try to steer I won't necessarily away from China, but back towards a historically Western-leaning position. So give us your view of, of what's, what's in the, the future for the, for the Philippines. Um, you know, we've, it, we have managed to sort of recover the relationship uh, from what it was a few years ago. And I think that is a lot of good work. I think much of it done by uh, the U.S. military types. I think they have done uh, pretty well down there. So it's, it's recovered. And even, I think, administrations did a pretty good job of um, not getting sort of tangled up with Duterte and his eccentricities. Uh, but the, whether or not it moves back entirely in our direction, I'm not so sure. And why I say that is that uh, a, friend, a friend of mine who really knows the Philippines, I saw him make a comment the other day, and he says, you know, if you, and he, he, I mean, he really knows the place. And he says, you know, if you think Duterte was bad, Marcos, who's the guy that's likely to be the next president, it's going to be even worse with him. And I didn't get into the details or the specifics of it, uh, but it was when a guy like that said it, you had to you know, think, oh, boy, one more problem coming our way. Uh, and it, I, what, I, say I don't know the, the details, but the, the venality or the sort of the corruption of the Filipino elite uh, is just off the charts and it always has been. So 
uh, Duterte's departure may not, as I say, bring things right back to normal, uh, the way one of, some of us would like to have thought it would. But and, but some good news down in the Philippines is uh, an American investment group is going to buy a good chunk of Subic Bay. Uh, the port had gone bankrupt, and you had two Chinese state-owned enterprises that really wanted to get it. And it was an American investment fund, Cerberus, that appears to have uh, signed the deal. And I, I don't know what involvement the U.S. government had in that, but I suspect there was some. And you know, whoever was involved deserves some credit for that. Now they have to bring it to fruition and make something of it. So do you, when you say, uh, for, for those of you who don't um, remember the the wonders of the Marcos administration prior to Imelda Marcos, Marcos and her shoe collection. That was one of the in, most interesting things that came out of the whole thing. But the Marcoses lived well, and they did all right as a family. Um, do you see more of that in the future of the Philippines and a continued movement back? Or does the cash draw of China Will it always keep the Philippines in, in a bit of a different orbit? I, I think that's more like it is that uh, China is the, it's there and it's not going away. It has its claws in the Philippines. You know, fortunately, uh, that a lot of Filipinos don't like that, don't like China. Uh, but at the ruling class, it's always been uh, like this, where they're sort of up for up for the highest bidder. You know, and then you do have the normal resentments over the Americans, you know, the things that the Yankees have you know, done or thought to have done, they're not done, that there's this resentment that underlies a lot of their uh, foreign policy behavior. And you know, it's not as if we haven't, uh, over the years, we have sometimes given them reason to uh, have those resentments and often just through short-sightedness or dumbness uh, on our own part. The um, and again, Philippines, uh, as you said, I mean, was that if that relationship changed? And just imagine if if Marines could be ashore doing Green Beret like things, right, with missiles and being able to do area denial stuff. That's a bit of a different equation than trying to find a place to fight from uh, that we're mm -hmm. in now. And again, just to note, there has still been no announcement of a. American economic initiative in the in the Pacific uh, in the Pacific. <laughs> so, just so, uh, yeah. just in case anybody is wondering about that, right? Yeah, and um, uh -huh. yeah, you know, I would like to see the Americans, you know, have the opportunity or make the effort, uh, or more of an effort, to really get in with the Philippine military. Uh, the Marines could do a lot in this regard as well. I don't mean showing up for Balikatan for some exercise every once in a while, right. uh, but you know, really have be there all the time. Yeah, you know, with them, treat them like equals. And you know, the Philippine military has a lot of uh, fighting experience going back from probably the start of the entire, well, when Philippine got the Philippines got its independence and before. You know, that would be as you say the geography down there. If you look at it. Um, there's a lot of things you could do from the Philippines uh, if we have the opportunity. Um, before Duterte came, there was a very good effort made by, uh, led by the Marines uh, in the in, in Marfor Pak, as I recall, uh, that did have a lot of things sort of opened up and ready to go. And then Duterte came in and 
uh, things uh, are put on hold. Maybe that can be recovered, but there's there's always more to do. And but the the geography in the Philippines is it's important. If you know when you just look at the map, and we talk about Taiwan all the time, uh, but <clears throat> the Philippines are probably you know, as uh, as important geography wise. Um, there's an article written by David Goldman, uh, published two days ago. Headline: <clears throat> Excuse me, Chinese missiles can likely sink U.S. carriers. A March 8th Congressional Research Service report on China's naval capabilities cites the view of top U.S. commanders that China's arsenal of anti-ship ballistic missiles can hit moving targets, effectively closing an area a thousand an area a thousand miles from China's coast to the American Navy. The report states, and I quote. A December 3, 2020 press report stated that Admiral Philip Davidson, the commander of U.S. Indo-Pacific Command, I think he, he's gone now, but anyway, quote, confirmed for the first time the U.S. government side that China's People's Liberation Army has successfully tested an anti-ship ballistic missile against a moving ship. China reportedly is also developing hypersonic glides, glide vehicles that if incorporated into Chinese anti-ship ballistic missiles could make Chinese anti-ship ballistic missiles even more difficult to intercept. Um, talk to us about this, um, because really um, the problem of dynamic targeting is, which is targeting a, a, something that's on the move, is a big deal. And if you can solve that, right, um, like I said in the past, hypersonic missiles. If you want to knock the face off Mount Rushmore, go ahead. Okay, but anything that's moving you know, right now, that, that doesn't exist. And now what they're saying, this article says, is that does exist and they own it. Um, your thoughts on this and what does it mean for the Pacific? Well, probably the same thoughts you would have. It's uh, a problem, to say the least. It's, <laughs> it's, it shouldn't surprise See, anybody. that's how you know Grant's an expert. He says shit like that. So it's a problem. No, I was being nice, you know, <laughs> saying you're you're almost as smart as me. <laughs> no, it, it uh, actually is more direct, directed towards um, the ruling class in Hawaii for the last 10 years. Uh -huh. um, you know, everybody knew this was coming. And there was this belief, well, the Chinese either won't do it because they value their relationship with us too much, or they're just not smart enough. Uh, you know how the Chinese are always referred to as a near-peer competitor? Well, the near should have gone away a long, long time ago, but that reflects a condescension and a sort of hubris on our side. Uh, so this is, you know, it's an engineering problem, ultimately, and the Chinese, is, you know, as I said, are just as clever as us, uh, and it doesn't surprise me they figured it out. The one question, of course, is how well have they figured it out so far? You know, can they, you know, is it as, can you hit everything you shoot at? Do they have the capabilities mastered or is it developing? I suspect it's developing, but it's enough to uh, cause any smart person to worry. And then you ask, well, okay, how are we going to counter this? What do we have? Um, if, you know, I hope there's some smart guys who have been working on this. And then can we do to them what they do to us? Uh, and I hope there's some smart guys who've been working on this. Would I bet much money on that? I'm not sure as to how far along we are. Uh, so it does, you know, once again, it, it, it ought to give us some real concern. And 
you know, the Chinese might just think that they've got enough of a lead, enough of an advantage uh, that will to push us back and you know keep us quiet while they do something else somewhere, somewhere, and say Taiwan or even you know you see they're making their move into the South Pacific, you know, the Southwest Pacific as we speak, uh, and they apparently don't worry much about what the Americans or the Australians will do to them. Uh, so th this is a it is a big deal, you know. It uh, and you, you wonder what we've done for the last twenty years to let this happen. Well, we've listened to Wall Street. That's what we've done, and so we financed it, you know, which ought to make it which ought to make us all feel good about ourselves, right? Um, what do you, what are you writing this week? Um, but before I get to that, what I was talking about with the Chinese making their move into the Southwest Pacific, it just came out yesterday uh, that they have got a, a draft agreement uh, out with the Solomon Island government that basically allows the Chinese military to come into the Solomons and operate. If you read the details, it, prov it allows all of that to happen. And for many years was said, well, the Chinese will never, they're not interested in military bases or presence in the Pacific. They just want to make money. And every, any, any sort of moderately alert moron knew that that was not true. And here it looks as if they have finally made their move uh, and you know are going to push. And I think you're going to see the PLA in the Solomon Islands uh, in the, the future. Uh, and it's just as important now as it was in World War II. So this is the start of something new. We're going to see the Chinese in more places uh, after this as well. So, yeah. so the headlines on Reuters <clears throat> exclusive Solomon Islands considers security cooperation with China. Uh, Wall Street Journal, Australia alarmed by the prospect of China Solomon Islands security pact. Beijing closes in on security pact that will allow Chinese troops in the Solomon Islands. Solomon Islands moles. So. This is, 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 would you say this is fait accompli? Oh, definitely fait accompli. Oh um, yes, it's definitely a fait accompli. <laughs> and, and, and I do not have um, a sanguine view uh. of this, <laughs> nor do I. Notice how he flips it around there? Do you see? He went, <laughs> he went fluent French to then hillbilly Virginia. No, sanguine is like a French word. Oh. Um, and I do not have sang Freud about it either. Oh, you're, um, hey, you're getting yourself into a point where you won't be able to come back from, okay? No, I'm, def I'm definitely a raptor. This is bad. Uh, <laughs> and the idea that, well, they're just thinking about it. Uh, we've seen them thinking about things all the time. And when, it, when, this is, when it's reported as just thinking about it, uh, it's coming. Uh, you, can, I would, you can be, I'd say, 99% sure of that. So here we are. Um, but the thing, what am I writing? Um, the Solomon Islands, for God's sake. Yeah, right, I think so. there's going to be Solomon Islands are going to be worked into something uh, that points out, well, we've been flexing our muscles up in Northeast Asia, putting on great bodybuilding shows. Uh, the Chinese have gotten around behind us, and here they are. And it's not just the Solomons. There's a few other places they've got their no. their eyes on and have them on. Oh, no, maybe you've some, been you've been warning us about that for a while. So yeah, and you, maybe, oh, I have oh, some other piece supposed to come out about uh, Korea, South Korea. Yes, and um, and it's it doesn't just recount the news. It points out that uh, while we you know properly focus on bolstering South Korea's defense and 
being able to deal with North Korea and China, take them on, that we might want to um, give the South Korean economy a boost. And by that, I mean, give some decent treatment to the South Koreans, special treatment uh, that helps the, the new president bolster the economy. Um, my point is that uh, most people everywhere, and no less in Korea, vote for uh, based on the economy, you know, their jobs, housing, their prospects, and not so much on foreign affairs. So if we like to have these uh, a conservative government, uh, we might want to see it, see to it that this the economy gets better in South Korea. This guy gets some credit. Uh, the Chinese have, uh, in 2017, put huge pressure on South Korea after South Korea put in a THAAD battery, and it really hurt the South Koreans. The U.S. administration's response was to do nothing, and they just let them uh, swing in the wind uh, and suffer by themselves, and that left some resentment. So America, need, my point is we should, would do well to use the economic angle and consider it as a <clears throat> line of effort and consider that it has a direct effect on defense, on security, on our political relationships with these countries. Uh, so that's what I'm I'm writing about. It took and, me a little. Somebody mentioned this to me, but Grant, what would it what does it take to influence the Solomon Islands? How much are they looking for? Right, boy. Yeah, I. You know, you could have sent down. Yeah, I don't know, six gunnies, <laughs> and, you know, just said go to work, do something well, or find Major Jeff Tenen, who was who's retired and who did more for Taiwan than the entire US government combined. Um, send these guys that have the magic down there and you'll get some results. I'm being a little simplistic there, but it doesn't take much effort. And it would have helped to have a, um, an, administ you know, an embassy uh, in the Solomon Islands. That's always a good thing. Not have outsourced it to the foreign policy to others, but yet Americans had to be there. You know, have the, the military down there, have more diplomats and sort of somehow force you know, some sort of U.S. or Japanese or Taiwanese business into the place, um, expose the corruption because the guys running the Solomon Islands now are completely corrupt. This has been known for a long time. The Australians knew it as well. Nobody has done anything about that. You know, expose it and then support your friends. You know, we have plenty of friends down in the Solomon Islands. Give them some support. But it would have all started with paying attention maybe. Uh, and the, the Trump administration did know this, and they did more, as I've said, did more for the, the Pacific uh, than any other administration. But they only had really three years at most to get anything done. Uh, but you, we had to pay attention to it. This isn't a problem that you know showed up yesterday, uh, but it's been a good 20 years in the making. So there's plenty of credit to go around for this, this great success. Got it. All right. Um... Are you writing something else that we should be looking for? And then I have one final question for you. Um, no, that's about it, I think, for now. I, um, uh, okay. Yeah. All right. Here's my, then here's the my question. Come, yeah. Here's my question. How important, given the fact that um, we see um, uh, this morning in the news, North Korea's launched another ICBM, right? Iran. You know, you know, making more and more progress towards nuclear weapons. How important do you think to the world is it for Russia to be crushed by um, Western economic power um, in the face of what they're doing? 
um, because it's not like we we're not going to see this again. Yeah, you know, if I don't know about crushing Russia. I uh, I w don't see how we're going to deal with uh, Putin. Uh, but you know, it's important that the Russians do not, and I say the Russians do not. Um, are not able to say that they are be seen as having had gotten away with this, that they were able to use military force against an, in, an independent nation, really the biggest country in Europe and a democracy, uh, to take some of their territory, uh, to commit you know uh, war crimes all over the place, and to have gotten away with it by making, especially by making use of the threat of nuclear weapons. Uh, that you, we cannot have that be the outcome of this. Um, it has to be seen that Russia did not succeed and that the cost to Russia, Putin in, in particular and his crowd was such that he wishes he didn't do it. Right. And if we don't, then you're going to see the Chinese draw the proper conclusions and that you will pay for this uh, in Asia in short order, I think. Got it. All right, sir. First of all, um, always a uh, pleasure to talk to you and catch up to you. Thank you very much for doing this. And uh, have a uh, great uh, weekend. And mm -hmm. uh, we will talk to you next week. Okay. Thanks a lot. Always enjoy it. All right. Thanks, Brent. Right, Joe. Mm -hmm. Bye-bye. There you have it. The one and only Grant Newsham here on a Thursday edition of All Marine Radio. That'll do it. Thanks for listening. This program repeats itself momentarily, so you got to give me, because I'm doing it live today, got to give me a moment to flip it over. Yeah. I'm Mike McNamara. This is All Marine Radio. If I can help you or somebody else, um, please don't hesitate. Let me know. That's what I do. And uh, on this Thursday... Again, thank you for listening, and I am out.